On this episode of Powered by Battery, we chat with the decider, Nicole Wong, who formerly served as deputy CTO of the United States in the Obama administration. Wong earned the moniker of The Decider for her work as a top lawyer at Google, where she frequently weighed in on thorny issues of internet censorship and free speech. Now she's consulting with companies on issues involving privacy, security, and big data. Recorded at the Code Conference in Scottsdale, Arizona, here's Nicole Wong. Have a listen. Nicole Wong, welcome to Powered by Battery. Thank you so much for having me. So there's been a lot of talk here this week about the dangers of big tech. And in some ways, you're really uniquely positioned to talk about this, given your background as a former top lawyer for Google and as the deputy CTO of the United States. So let's start with that last big job in government. Uh, Tell us what you were doing when the administration asked you to come to Washington and why did you want to take the job? I was at Twitter at the time, uh, responsible for like standing up their product council team, which is a team that makes sure that like the launch of all the products goes well globally. Um, But uh, about six months into the job, I got a call from the White House, which is just as like make you sit down on your front steps type of moment um, as as, as, as any other, uh, and was asked to join the Obama administration as their deputy CTO, which um, the portfolio that I had was to do internet policy, innovation policy, and some privacy policy. So I thought I was going to go and do things like internet governance and freedom of expression, which I had worked on a lot. Um, and maybe a little privacy. Uh, And as it turned out, right a little before I was going to arrive, I was planning to come in the summer with my family, Um, but the Edward Snowden disclosures started on June 9th. Right. uh, And my uh, boss-to-be, Todd Park, who was the CTO, said, how soon can you be here? Um, And as it turns out, like pretty much my entire time at Uh, The White House was really about privacy, national security, um, the public policy implications of of big data and and, uh, artificial intelligence. Okay. All right. Well, so, right, it was kind of a trial by fire. Um, What do you feel like you accomplished? I mean, you were there about a year. Um, I can't imagine the issues that you had to deal with. Um, When you look back on it, what are you most proud of? There was a wide range of issues. Um, I think the the project that was most important to me came actually after we had sort of closed up um, the the review of, of the Snowden investigation and the national security implications of using big data and turned to um, what are the public policy implications of using big data. And the president was uh, sort of thinking about how can we how will we use data for good. Um, And so we did a 90-day investigation and report um, thinking about, like, how do we think about using data in the health sector for for the benefit of everyone's health? That became the Precision Medicine Initiative. How do we think about it in education, um, in in security and and, um, law enforcement, and the biases that data can have when you use it in certain ways? and, and I think the most important thing, actually, that came out of that report, because people had been thinking about data in the context of privacy mm-hmm. and keeping people's individual privacy um, secure. And actually, the most interesting thing we learned was that people were really worried about fairness 
right? Like that, I don't want my data to be used against me. I don't want it to um, curtail the types of opportunities that I will be that will What's be available. An example of that? So that um, because of what you know about me, maybe my insurance rates are higher. Maybe I won't get that loan. Maybe my housing um, opportunities are, are lower. And so this notion of um, two things. One is the fair use of data, which is different than privacy, right? Like when we think about remedies for privacy, we think about like collect less data and keep it more secure. When you think about fairness, maybe you need to know more about someone to ensure that they're treated equitably, um, that you have full understanding of who that person is in order to provide them with the right services. And so it created a kind of an interesting tension. I think the also the really interesting thing about that investigation is that um, what was really clear whether we were talking to public sector or private sector folks about data is individuals feel an acute sense of asymmetry of power that that an individual really isn't in control of either who collects their data or how it's used and that the companies that have it have all the power in that relationship. And so that gives you actually a path to think through, well, what are our solutions when we think about public policy around that? Like, how do we rebalance and provide more controlled users or a, a feeling of empowerment to people about the uses of their data? Right. Well, and the issues involving data have only gotten more and more intense. I think you left government in 2014. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, I mean, again, this is something that's being discussed a ton at this conference. Um, what are your thoughts about how well big tech is handling data today? Yeah, they're <laughs> so it's varied. Um, but but I think that the public's attention is much more on those uses of data, right? Like that we're feeling we need to assert ourselves um, and create stronger policies if we're going to get anywhere with, with, with this new data economy. Um, and I think that big tech has been good about trying to make some accommodations, but maybe not as, as creative in thinking about the solutions. And, and by that, I mean, I think that what you've seen roll out are a lot of promises to do better, to serve your users better, to provide them with more choices. And I do kind of wonder whether we as individuals are sort of like, I don't, I don't want more choices. I want you to exercise some restraint right, right in the uses. I, I don't need to know more. I just need to know that you won't do certain things. Um, and I, I, I feel like that's in the last year been a, a change in how I think of people approaching this. And ultimately, that means you feel like people would support more regulation. I think so. Yeah. I think so. And then I think um, in the United States, at least, we have held off on regulation for a, quite a while. I think Europe putting their law into place has caused a sea change for everybody who's a multinational um, or wants to be a multinational. And so that changes the way they approach those issues. I'm certainly seeing it in the venture community of like, investors are going to ask, like, what's your plan um, on right. data and how are you keeping it secure and, and all of that um, because it's a real, um, not just a risk issue, but, like, they want to see it resourced. Okay. Um, and I think that that's different. 
I think you spoke about that on stage today, which is to say that um, as long as companies know they have to have a person whose job it is to enforce this, there is a budget. Even though that may not sound very important, that goes a long way toward addressing the problem. And a requirement right? in, in under GDPR, there's a requirement that the executives are informed, that they receive regular reports. Right. That's like putting that on your CEO's radar, that's a different thing. So going back to your government job, I hate to ask, but um, what happened to these reports given that we've had a change in administration? I don't know if the current administration even has a CTO. I'm not sure. Yeah, there's no CTO. Oh, good. <laughs> There's a science advisor, finally, which I'm actually thankful for. Okay. Um, and the, I think they had a deputy CTO, and then he became an interim CTO, but I don't I don't know that um, it's a Senate-approved job, so I don't know that they've gone through that final process. Um, it's really too bad, uh, yeah. because I think at the time that I was there, there was probably a total of 100 people in the Office of Science and Technology Policy, so imagine like a right. hundred of the smartest people could you could hope for on everything from climate change to Ebola yeah um, being able to advise the president um, and that doesn't exist okay. at this point okay which we should probably be a little worried about um, any other takeaways from Washington just generally you're from California I know from San Diego <laughs> you live in Berkeley with your family um, you know, you had worked for law firms and then big tech companies and then, you know, did your stint in government. What are the other takeaways from that experience? Um, I mean, it was a gift to, yeah. to get to, to serve in, in the Obama administration and, and with people who wanted to do a lot of things that would help the, the citizens of the United States and, and those in the United States at scale. Um, I, I think... What we're seeing now is a real challenge in the sense that uh, some of our most important questions are how we govern technology, not just data, but technology, um, and who's in charge, like who makes those calls. And um, under a different administration, you could imagine convening as many experts as you can and stakeholders on, on that issue from civil society to industry um, and trying to create frameworks around how we would do that. Um, and we desperately need that in government. Um, as much as you have a lot of uh, career civil servants trying to do their best with what they have, they don't have a tech background. They don't think in terms of agile development. They don't think in terms of fast delivery. They think they don't think in terms of the user, which is the citizen that they're trying to serve, right? They think about how does my bureaucracy work? Mm -hmm. Right. How do I do all the documentation that I got to right. do for for whatever reports? Um, and that model has to change in order to keep up, because if you can click a button and order a chocolate cake at two in the morning, right, mm -hmm. you should be able to get your Social Security uh, on time. Right. right. Like that. Right. It shouldn't be that hard. <laughs> well, do you feel like do you feel like our lawmakers and maybe their staffs too, because the staff is just as important as the lawmaker as far as informing them, are becoming more tech savvy? I mean, during the Zuckerberg hearings, I think that was on full display that perhaps they were not as yeah. up to speed as they should be. Yeah, there were a lot of right. a lot of senators who appeared to be reading off of Wikipedia pages. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> and learning that Facebook sells ads to make money, right? Exactly, yeah, right? Um, so I I have a great. Um, deal of optimism because I think that staff actually are getting much better 
um, there was, and, and for example, like one of the primary regulators of internet companies is the Federal Trade Commission, mm -hmm. and they have an entire office of technologists, right, who understand how technology works, how data works, um, and are able to give good guidance to the commission as a whole, as well as the Bureau of Enforcement on, on how things are, are working. I think we need the same thing in the executive branch, which would be the CTO's office. I think we need the same thing in the Congress, which used to have um, a, a nonpartisan office that provided advice to <clears throat> the Congress and their staff about right. how things worked. And, and we should have that again. Like that, sh that should be a priority. Okay, okay. Well, let's, let's go back to the beginning of your career because you got started as an attorney, I think, after graduating from law school, focused on First Amendment issues, right? Yeah. And that, and, and that stemmed, a little known fact um, is that we were both college journalists briefly at the same time. So you had a journalism background too, right? I did, I yeah. wanted to be, a, I thought I wanted to be a journalist. And then when I actually got to the decision point, so I, I actually went to, I only applied to law schools which also had corresponding journalism programs. So I got a graduate degree in journalism at, at nice. UC Berkeley in addition to the law school. And by the way, the, the journalism students were so much nicer than the law students. <laughs> and so I spent a lot more time over so there. So much more interesting, creative, right, <laughs> Supportive. Right. Um, uh, all my law friends are gonna be really bitter about that. <laughs> um, but uh, so, so when I ultimately had to make a choice. Um, I kind of felt like my skill sets were leaning more towards advocacy in mm -hmm. a way that I couldn't envision doing in in a news setting. Right. I just didn't have the 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 right skills for it, and so um, so I went into yeah re representing TV stations and newspapers and radio stations um, on the full range of everything from defamation claims to. Um, access to courts or access to records, um, and and that was amazing. And that was uh, around 1995, mm -hmm. um, and I was practicing in California in the Bay Area, and that's also when some of the newspapers were starting to go online. Uh -huh. um, McClatchy was an early mover into the online uh, news space, and so we were. I was following that class of clients. Um, and because of the timing in, in the Bay Area, there were also internet companies starting to pop up. Right, and then were they clients of your law firm? They were, okay. so we went out and um, with a, a partner and mentor, Tamija and Burlesford, um, started to get some of the internet pure play clients. So some of them were message boards, um, and some, uh, I think 1997 is when we first started doing work for Yahoo, wow, which was one of them. the major, yeah. right? And um, Hotmail before it was acquired by Microsoft <laughs> and eGroups before it was acquired by, I think it was acquired by Google. I can't remember exactly who took them, but like a lot of the early bubble uh, internet clients and then and then there was the crash and then there was more right. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, so you know just different keep... kinds of internet companies exactly right, like right. you just sort of ride that wave but I learned a ton because at the time in the late 90s early 2000s there wasn't really a huge amount of law um, they were just starting to put in place some of the early privacy uh, regulations and laws and, and content uh, things the now famous Section 230 came into existence around that time. Um, and what I, I'm not familiar with Section 230. Yeah, so tell so our listeners Section what that 230 is. was um, one clause of a larger 
uh, statute that was passed to protect kids. This, but this, the rest of it was um, deemed unconstitutional. But the one provision of Section 230 actually said that platform companies. Um, so think of the Yahoo search engine types, but also the message boards at the time, um, would not be treated as publishers for all of the user-generated content that was uploaded to their um, okay. platforms. And the reason for that is um, if it, they, it was noticing or, or it was recognizing that a platform is less like a newspaper with an editor. Um, who would have responsibilities in the way an editor would, and more like a bookstore or a magazine seller, okay. right? Where I stack, I stock my store with a lot of stuff, but I won't be responsible for every word in inside right. those magazines. And so that was the notion: is like they shouldn't have the same types of liabilities as as the um, as the editor. But that, but I mean, this is again still such an important issue today because you know polls show that I don't know what it is, sixty percent of Americans get at least some news from yes. Facebook. So I mean, we're we're still I think exploring the issue of whether platforms like Facebook are indeed publishers, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. I and and I think um, you know in the, in the early days of the internet, like so this is twenty years ago now, right? Um, I think we didn't know what it was going to become. So this is pre-Google, pre-Facebook, pre-YouTube, right. right? And so um, the the regulatory approach to the internet was let's try not to break it before it really comes into birth. And so there, it is correct to say like, yeah, we've really had a hands-off sort of approach to the internet. And that was probably approach, uh, appropriate for that time. But if you think about the arc of history of like our mass communications forums, print right like right. printing presses radio tv cable they all have the similar arc but in different time frames of we introduce them and innovate on them we have sort of mass distribution and penetration and adoption social norms develop around what's okay to say to you on in the in print on radio in tv and it's a little bit different in each of those places. I, I don't think it should be surprising to anyone that people are starting to talk about that. I do think it's important to be sophisticated in our understanding of how these platforms work um, because I think that they are importantly different than a newspaper or a radio station or TV station. Right. Um, and and so I, I don't think for the platforms like a YouTube or a Facebook in general, they are not in their editing. They are not in their screening and hiring reporters and being responsible for those reporters in the same way that a newspaper would. Um, but they do amplify, right? They do make choices about both amplification and optimization right. that I think we have to look more carefully at. Well, right. Like the YouTube CEO was on stage last night, and she was drawing a distinction between previewing or her team of people looking and screening content before it goes up versus policing what's already there. Right. And that seemed to be a big distinction as well. I think that's right. And I think, you know, you have to decide what world you want to live in, which is if you decide that someone at YouTube, it's not going to be Susan, but like someone right. at YouTube is going to look at every video before it's allowed to go up, then you've decided that like YouTube chooses what the world sees. And I'm not sure anyone 
ought to be comfortable with that arrangement. Right. 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 Um, as opposed to everyone gets to put their voice up on the, the platform and if it is bad, then someone flags it, right? Either the company or a user flags it and says, like, you got to take another look at that and do, do something appropriate with it. Right. So when, just going back to your comment about regulation is coming, and that's the law part, I think I've heard you talk a little bit about how GDPR, you know, which is what we have in Europe, is not necessarily a panacea for what's going on here. Why is that not necessarily appropriate? Yeah. Here? So there, I... GDPR was like a law that was six years in the making. Right. You can think about it. Like, so I actually, I was very skeptical about it as it was sort of moving through the process. Um, but having helped a bunch of companies uh, implement it now, I actually think it's very thoughtful and, and good law. It, because it's like literally six years old, it's missing some stuff, right? So right. like it's actually... If you want to do a lot of research, it's not very good for that. Hmm. Um, internal business research. If you want to, it's not particularly good for things like Internet of Things um, hmm. because of the way it says you have to deal with lots of data, which is like recognizes your device, that it, it's going to be difficult for that. Um, it's not very good for if you're focusing on artificial intelligence. So there's things that I think are very limiting about it. Um, but on the other hand, I think it has created a sea change in the industry around having a person who is responsible for your data practices, mm -hmm. having that person have a full program that they document and have auditable is, is an allocation of, of resources that are usually at the tail end of what an executive wants to do and now has to be at the forefront. And it requires reports to your CEO, right? So like all of a sudden, this is a regular thing that your CEO has to think about. And I think that that, when you think about what changes the culture inside a company, it's that kind of accountability right. um, mechanisms that, that really change. Right, right. Well, the, so the world that GDPR is trying to solve for, I guess, and they're still a little bit behind because they're six years old, you probably could not have envisioned when you first joined Google, which was in the early 2000s, yeah. right? Yeah. So there, we were dealing with a completely different situation. I mean, then big tech companies were sort of being glorified, and a lot of what you were doing was, you know, using the internet to promote democracy around the right. world, and you were defending YouTube and, you know, Google search results from authoritarian regimes, right? So tell us a little bit about that and what that time was like in some of the big battles that you that you waged. Yeah, I I think um, I mean so if you think historically about the internet and it's a short history, but but like the first <laughs> ten years of the commercial web, right, was really dominated by a handful of countries. It was the United States, Europe, Canada, Australia, and Japan, and and so all of those countries sort of grew the economic models and the sort of use cases. Um, but importantly about the, those countries, they all pretty much shared the same values and laws around rule of law and judicial proceedings, um, uh, privacy, and freedom of expression. Mm -hmm. um, around 2007, you started to see much deeper internet penetration in places like China, Brazil, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Vietnam, um, countries which do not necessarily share the same institutions of law, 
the same respect for privacy that we think about in Western right. civilizations, or right. nor like the the same respect for freedom of expression. And because of that, th that kind of came at a confluence of the rise of those countries in terms of internet penetration and the rise of um, our ability and, and bandwidth constraints. So like all of a sudden YouTube was able to be more broadly available and, and images were able to be transmitted much better because of our, our capacities. And images and video go beyond language. So where in blogs, which were textual, you were kind of constrained in your audience by, well, does the audience understand the language, whether it's Russian or, or Hebrew or whatever? Um, all of a sudden, it's just visual. And so you can cross-communicate across jurisdictions and cultures that in ways that cause conflict, in ways that we had hoped would be like, everyone will come together and really <laughs> like understand each other better because of it, um, which was true in many cases, but also became like this frontier for conflict of, of communities that usually wouldn't talk to each other and all of a sudden couldn't avoid each other. Right. We'll talk about Google going into China. Maybe that's an example. We could talk about Turkey in a minute, too. Yeah, but. yeah. Um, yeah, so I was there for Google's decision both to go in and, and to leave China. Um, the decision to go in was was a long one, and this is, I'm not saying anything else outside of school. This was sort of a public thing. It took us about two years to really mm -hmm. think through if we would go in, how we would go in, and the right infrastructure for going in, um, because of what we knew were constraints on um, our ability to freely provide information because of the censorship laws in China at the time, and also because of Yahoo's experience in China where they were forced to turn over um, the, the personal information of a dissident. Oh, um, okay. And so knowing that those were threat models for us, the question was like, how do you go responsibly into China with aligned with the mission that was like, make all the world's information available and mm -hmm. accessible. Mm -hmm. um, so what we ended up doing was we did, we went in with the search engine. Um, the search engine would, to be compliant with, with China's laws, have to remove certain um, links to content that would be against the law in China. So Tiananmen Square, Tiananmen Square right? Falun Gong yeah. and, and anything politically sensitive. Um, and so, but, but in doing so, what we decided to do is to go in and if um, links had to be removed from the search engine, there would be a notice on the bottom that said certain results do not appear because of government regulations. And that was actually um, a really important change to how business was done in China. None of the other search engines there were doing that. But what it told Chinese users is there's something missing. So if you had the impression that you were seeing everything, you should know that your government is not letting you see everything. And that's right. a big deal. And to, and to people who criticized you for doing this and for going along with these restrictions, you would say, well, hey, you're still getting more than you were getting before, yes. and you're at least you're at least realizing that maybe you're not getting exactly. the whole story. So that's good okay. because it triggers. Like if, if you think about like humans and computers, kind of have this dance that they do together, right? Like computers learn from humans, and humans the same. And so all of a sudden, you have this muscle memory of I shouldn't always assume the thing I see is the only thing that's there. 
and and that didn't exist before. And after us going in, the other search engines adopted the same practice, right? So I thought we went in and did the right things for the right reasons when, while we were there. Um, over the years that we were there, it became harder and harder. The censorship became more oppressive. Um, we were hearing things like uh, China was going to require surveillance um, software to be on every computer sold in China. That concerned us greatly. And then we discovered that Google's system themselves had been hacked. So I forgot yeah. to mention that we did not um, provide Google accounts going in. We didn't authenticate any users in China because we never wanted to have to turn over their data. Um, Chinese hackers actually came onto Google systems um, and hacked into Gmail accounts and, and noticeably hacked into accounts that were of Chinese dissidents or, or um, Chinese human rights activists. Um, and that was sort of a final straw for us. We, we then okay. withdrew from the country. Okay, okay. So that was a big public case for you. Um, like you said, it was kind of played out in the media. But you were, your nickname was The Decider. And you were not George Bush, but you were like the Google censorship <laughs> decider. And I guess for a couple of years, you were the person that was getting the late night phone call, right? Saying, hey, Turkey wants to, you know, has blocked these YouTube videos or has blocked these search results. What do we do? Is that the right characterization? And tell me, like, what that was like. This sounds crazy. This sounds like a Yeah, crazy it is job. crazy. Um, but, but so, importantly... The decider moniker was something that a person on my team came up with, and uh, mostly to harass me, I think. <laughs> it's like, my kids would tell you, like, I can't even decide what vegetable we're having for dinner. So right. that's not actually like a personality trait for me. Um, but I think so, there was a whole team that we had, right. both reviewing content, making assessments about whether something needs to be escalated or taken down. Um, I would see the ones that where we were confronting something new, mm -hmm. right, or a hard pu policy decision about whether we ought to take it down or, or if that had political ramifications. Um, and and yes, I like Susan um, uh, for YouTube earlier at the conference was saying like, yeah, of course you have to look at it. And so I did. Mm -hmm. Like same as Susan had said she had done it on occasion, and I, I believe that. Um, you have to look at a video in context to understand mm -hmm. what you're looking at. Very often I would be looking at video that A, wasn't in a language that I spoke. Mm -hmm. I had no cultural context for what was happening. Right. Um, really early on, for example, um, a video was surfaced that was of a man just being brutally beaten um, in a, a very spare room. We couldn't tell what it was. Um, and so it was taken down, and we immediately got a call from a human rights organization saying, hey, that is actually an, a video documenting human rights abuse in Egypt. You've got to put that back up. It's the only way that we can show the world how bad abuses are getting in, in Egypt. And of course we'd want to take it up, but it had no context for us to make right. that call, right? It looked like extreme violence and in violation of our policies, mm -hmm. and in fact it was this really important human rights moment. Um, and so those are the types of calls that happen every day, right? And and they're really important, right. um, and they're really hard. Uh, it sounds at, at exhausting. Yeah, yeah. It was it was exhausting. <laughs> I have to say. And how how big was this team? Your team at Google that was dealing with these issues. So so 
bear in mind, I left Google in 2011. Um, okay. We were much smaller than the current uh, infrastructure. I think we had a couple hundred hours of video going up per minute, and I think they have like 500 hours of wow. video going up per minute. They're, they're, I, I, I don't know, I think their audience is like 3 billion or something like that. Um, so uh, for me, um, the team that escalated to me was about 100, okay. maybe a little less than that. Um, and again, they would be the ones that would be seeing legally related content escalations. Okay. Okay. And then finally you got so exhausted you had to leave and go to Twitter, right? For a I took, actually, I took some time off. <laughs> okay. I, like, I had this moment where um, my kids who were, I think in middle school at the time, were like, we don't see you enough. Um, so I took some time off. Hard and to I, hear. Always ex- hard to hear. Oh, yeah. a dagger to the heart for any working mom. <laughs> um, and I was lucky enough that I could take some time and I spent about a year and a half with them at the end of which they were like, what do you do all day? (laughs) (laughs) Which was my signal, like, it's time to go back to work. Right. And so I did. Um, And I I did. I went to Twitter to have a role that was similar to what I was doing at Google, which was to help stand up their team, their legal team that looks at products for global launches. Um, And it was shortly after that that I got a call from the White House. Okay. Okay, well, let's talk about what you're doing now. It sounds like some consulting, some board work. What What are you most passionate about as far as what you're doing now? Um, the consulting is always fun. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm, I'm grateful to get to work with companies where, A, I love the people. Um, B, I find the companies that are mission aligned with me, that they're trying to do the right thing, Mm because you can spend your time with a lot of different companies and you don't need to waste your time with the ones that are trying to do the wrong thing. So uh, I do love the companies I work with. And and I try to choose companies where I'm learning something as well, Um, whatever, about either their product or the data they're using or or the markets they're in. Um, So that's awesome. Uh, and then I do some nonprofit work where, um, which sort of feeds my passions for, um, human rights. So I work mm-hmm. with a organization called Witness, which is a little over 25 years old now. Is it the Peter Gabriel it organization? Is. So okay. Peter founded it very uh, close in time to the Rodney King video coming okay. out. And the notion is that like video can change what we understand to be true and and can be used to document human rights in a way that can change public policy, can change the way that people see the world. And 25 years ago, it was literally like ship video cameras to human rights activists, right? Mm-hmm. Now everyone has a camera in their pocket. Right. And so the mission changes. And, and it's really about how do we take video responsibly um, some of the work that they have done with groups is about um, documenting by video ICE raids on immigrant families on the on the border. And so the question is like, how do you take that to document the abuses of of the law enforcement officers going in, but protect the families and the identity of the families right. where who are, who are in that video as well? So those are really important. Um, they've just started getting into um, how do we deal with deep fakes and other synthetic media, which is a huge issue right now because 
We need to be able to trust what we see. And the deep fakes, just for that's like the Dr. Nancy Pelosi video where, what did they slow it down or something? Yeah, so, so that would yeah. be considered what they call a shallow fake. I'm, a shallow I'm learning, fake. The, I'm learning okay. the terms now. So they, the, a shallow fake is like a true video, but it's been modified in some way. Okay. Like uh, to to change the, the, the nature of it, of understanding it. Shallow fakes also include like using old video from one place and pretending it's in some place else. Okay. So they did that with um, like a, a riot, I think that was in Pakistan, and then pretended that it was in Syria yes. to activate people. Yes. Right. So it's a fake. Um, so so those are those are shallow fakes. Deep fakes are actually where you use artificial intelligence to change a video or create a video out of whole cloth. So you can have someone i think they're actually just today came out like a mark zuckerberg video yeah. of him saying words that he did not say but it looks like he did because of the way the artificial That's intelligence works exactly right <laughs> and so so the question for us as an industry is like well what i think there are two things one is like let's not get too panicked about it right because like we have models for being able to detect and we have smart people who can look at video and say oh, that's fake, let's not promote it, right? right so we have right. tools for dealing with this. And I, what I worry about is there's a panic happening, and I think there's a hearing in Washington later this week, um, that it's the end of truth, right? If you, if you start talking as if, like, we can't find truth anymore, you're feeding into those people in power who would want to dismiss uncomfortable truths, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that... That's not good for anybody. So, so I don't want to. I don't want us to panic about it, but I do want us to address it. And I think that there are things that, if you are building things that allow the modification of video, then you ought to be building in things that can detect that video has been modified. Right. right. That, that that would be responsible in mm -hmm. in terms of putting a new technology out there. Okay. So the company. Just going back to the companies you're consulting for. Are they in? specific sectors i mean because data and privacy affects just about every Everybody, kind of company yeah. right so it's not just a bi analytics company it could be an e-commerce company offering Absolutely. new recommendations or something yeah okay. I, I think every company has some sort of data play at this point whether you're right. an old traditional type of company or, or new and so um my clients tend to be tech companies um because that's sort of my expertise of dealing with their cultures and and the way to build things in them um they range in sector and the type of data right. they handle. Um, some of them are more mainline, and they're trying to make a pivot to, to how do okay. I take a really old legacy system and make it more um, adaptable for, for a new environment. Well, which is hard, because I think you just said this, that making products um, from the get-go and building them to be more um, conducive to protecting privacy is what companies should be focusing right. on now. Right. Okay. This is sort of a random question, but just since you do consult for startups and we're a VC firm that has a ton of startups <laughs> in our portfolio, um, I mean, probably the issues that we work with the most on are issues of scaling, you know, growing your sales yep. team. When do you bring in a CFO? When do you bring in a certain kind of CFO before you go public? I have not had a lot of discussion with our companies about internal legal departments and bringing in a general counsel. I mean, I think when most companies are small, just like they're outsourcing functions like PR or even a rent a CMO, they're just using an outsourced law firm. When are there rules about when you should be bringing in a general counsel and how no, to do that? I, I, I don't think so. And I, I think it depends very much the type of company you are. So I think um, 
the the sort of last wave of internet companies probably brought their GCs in pretty late just yeah. because outside firms can do a lot for you mm-hmm. um, at this point and, and are well-resourced in, to do it and, and have the widest range of like young, cheap lawyers and more expensive, talented right. partner lawyers, right? So, so I think you get more flexibility when you do that. Having said that, I think there are a lot of companies now who they're not just building a dog walking app, right? They, right. Are, they are building things like the Ubers or the Airbnbs in the world where they immediately hit a regulatory exactly. issue. Or if you're in biotech, right, or you're dealing with health data, you are immediately in this space which is highly sensitive and traditionally highly regulated. And so that might be an earlier time to bring in a general counsel because right. the strategy of your business is as much legal and policy as it is, like, incorporate. <laughs> well, it kind of goes hand in hand. And when do you bring in an HR person? Yes. And when you look at a company like Uber, you think the legal and the and the human resources were really going hand in hand right. there. Right. So okay. So one of the issues that's come up a lot um, in the last couple of days is facial recognition. Why is that sort of a special threat? Yeah. Um, so there's a whole, particularly in there's an academic circle which is like we should ban facial recognition. Oh, okay. Um, because it is. It's a biometric, right? Um, and it it is uh, it's super sensitive. Like if you're recognizing, so so far this facial recognition thing in the lobby has yeah. accurately identified me every single time. <laughs> I don't know if they're ac- identifying anybody else as Nicole Wong, but they're accurately right, getting me right. every single time. And and that has a huge amount of power and an mm-hmm. ability to like deny rights or opportunities to people um so my first experience like i was literally told i couldn't get on a plane unless they took my picture um oh, recently. Really? and i think that that's that's a really first of all i don't think that's necessarily legal right was <laughs> this as I, you were entering the plane or getting yeah the no it was actually getting oh. getting onto the plane they were just gonna they took the picture and now it's in a database and so yeah, that's the, in theory sketch. like this is how you're not always gonna get on a plane from now on yeah i'm fine with the boarding pass the board i have no problem keeping the boarding pass in my pocket like it's all good <laughs> um but, but i think there's a lot of worry about who gets to use that that database. So if you think about what China's now doing, they are they have scanned everyone's face in China. They are all on a social currency system where literally you have points assigned where they're taking your face, they're mapping it to your performance at work and your ability to pay um, uh, your rent on time and all of those things. And now it's being used to deny you train tickets if you're trying to buy a train ticket. You know, it's, oh it, 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 there's all sorts of other ramifications for that. And I think that that's the world we're not ready for. No. And so the call for a moratorium on facial recognition is like, until we have some rules, we shouldn't be doing this anymore. So we've had a lot of depressing talk about things like uh, how our privacy is going away, how GDPR isn't going to save us, but maybe we can end at a positive note. Um, and I think I've heard you talk about this sometimes too, that we have to remember that the internet and big tech is still, you know, bringing a lot of good to the world. Um, I even just saw, I think I saw something in the paper just the other day about Russia um, another, you know, kind of authoritarian state like China, saying that YouTube there, for all the problems YouTube's been getting into in the recent weeks in the United States, 
even though all television in Russia is completely, basically, government-controlled and it's more like propaganda, people are finally seeing, uh, you know, political satire and other things like that on YouTube. And I'm guessing that's not the only example. So, I mean, do you feel like maybe in our rush to condemn and regulate, maybe we're forgetting some of the good things that are still happening? Yeah. No, I mean, I think the Internet's brought enormous amount of good, both economic productivity, but also cultural understanding and exposure to new ideas. And we shouldn't forget that. And that was the original hope for the Internet, right? right? Um so I still believe in all that, and I, I, but I also think that um, you can't enter the field without remembering why you're there and what you're trying to build. Like, no one promises us a free and open internet, right? So our choices from policy to the technology we build um, means that we're impacting that ecosystem and and we need to be cognizant of of building responsibly and and i think that there's um a really great move to introduce ethics into computer science courses mm-hmm. curriculums now right and and a really great move to have codes of ethics for those who work in the profession and other types of sort of bringing in not just like the hard tech, hardcore engineers, but like bring in sociologists and anthropologists to talk about what are the social implications of all of the things we build. And I think that's really important because um, we should get it right. All right. Well, Nicole Wong, thank you so much. And you're sure you don't want to go back into government service? <laughs> Maybe one day in the future. All right. Thanks so much <laughs> for joining us. Thank you.